heaven. That was a blessing. Our text for this morning is Romans chapter 3, verse 27 to 31. You'll find the outline in the bulletin. And <clears throat> I'd like to begin this morning by reading the passage. Romans 3, 27 to 31. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Lord God, I just pray that as we study this passage, what is called by many the heart of the gospel, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would understand it, that we would treasure it, that we would guard it, and that we would live it. Lord, just be here now with us. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is 1515. And in the Western world, this time, there's only one visible earthly church. And that, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1515, a obscure Catholic monk began preparing a series of lectures to teach through the book of Romans, the very book that we're studying now. And as he began to prepare his lectures, he stumbled upon the text we're looking at today and, and, and the notion of justification by faith. And, and he writes when he did that it was as though the gates of heaven opened and he was born again and all the scripture came alive to him. Two years later, this same Catholic monk nailed 95 theses, objections, complaints, against the Roman Catholic Church to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And this is the event that most see as sparking or starting the Protestant Reformation. The, the monk, of course, is Martin Luther. And the central issue of complaint, the central issue that Luther and his contemporaries had with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at that time was the issue of justification. The issue of justification was the central issue. Which, of course, then makes us ask, what is justification and why is it so important? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> In the book of Romans, Paul has been building an argument. See, one of, the, one of the dangers of going as we go verse by verse, which is the way to do it, is that we sometimes miss the big picture. I'd encourage you some Sunday afternoon to sit down and read the first three or four chapters of Romans in a sitting. Get the flow of the argument. If we, if we go back to chapter 1, we see that Paul establishes his thesis. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we know that Paul is writing about the gospel, about salvation, and how it is that God is righteous and just in saving men. And he goes on, and I'm just going to do a 
quick overview of the last three chapters of Romans to deal with different objections before he reveals the gospel. Before he reveals how it is that men are to be saved, he needs to establish the need. He needs to show why men need saving and why this is the only recourse, the only route of escape. And so he anticipates objections, the first being, but, but Paul, there are plenty of people who don't have Bibles. How do they know God exists? And Paul responds in chapter one saying that innately through nature, we all know about God's existence. Sadly, many of us suppress that knowledge, hold it down, but we're accountable. Ignorance of God is no excuse. And then he anticipates another objection in chapter two. But Paul, how are people without God's law supposed to know right and wrong? And he says, ah, but you have your conscience. And it pats you on the back at times, and it condemns you at times. You knew right from wrong. And he anticipates a third objection. But what about judgment? We didn't know judgment was coming, Paul. And Paul says in the beginning of chapter two, ah, but you condemn yourself, every one of you who judge another, for in judging another, you condemn yourself. That each and every one of us, when people lie to us and people cheat us, we get mad. We, we judge them, we, we punish them. And so we innately know this connection between doing wrong and the bringing on of punishment. And Paul says, you, you know judgment's coming. And then finally, in chapter three, he turns his attention to the religious person who, who says, but Paul, we have God's law and, and our good works are gonna outweigh our bad works. And, and Paul says that no amount of law keeping can make up for law breaking. We don't let murderers go free because they've never stolen cars. We don't let murderers go free because they've never committed forgery. Keeping of the law in no way makes up for the breaking of the law. And so Paul summarizes this con condemnation in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul has concluded that the arguments he has made of our condemnation results in the entire world being condemned, every possible objection being silenced, every mouth shut, the whole world accountable to God with no way of escape. And it's not until he gets us backed into that corner that he brings in one of the greatest words in the Bible, but now, but God, verse 21. And this was the marvelous passage last week that Pastor Gary unpacked. Chapter 321, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the sin atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now we get to the real crucial question. We're backed in this corner. There's nothing we can do. And then we learn the wonderful news. God has done everything for us that we could not do. God, in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished for us what we had no hope on our own of accomplishing. And so now the $300 million question is, 
How can I apprehend, receive the benefits of Christ's work on the cross? Because not all will receive the benefit of that work. So how can I receive it? And that is the issue of justification. Justification deals with one and one issue only. How can men be counted righteous because of what Christ did? And it was at this point that Luther and his understanding of what Paul was teaching and the Roman Catholic teaching differed. You see, they, they both agreed on who Jesus was. They both agreed on the deity of Christ, his sinless life. They both agreed that he died on the cross for sins, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And they both agreed on the necessity of faith. This may surprise you, the Roman Catholic Church does and did believe that faith in the work of Christ is essential to salvation. The difference is, on what basis do we receive it? And, and to help contrast this, and we won't spend our whole Sunday morning going back and forth here, but to help contrast the difference, the Roman view is that grace is infused. You see, as we exercise faith and as we do good works, like a blood transfusion, grace from Jesus, merit from Jesus is poured into us. It kind of takes our dirty good works and makes them pure. So on our own, we couldn't possibly do a good work, but if we do a good work in faith, then the work of Jesus is applied to that work and it becomes acceptable. And so justification then becomes a process and you're constantly becoming more righteous. And for those few who do become righteous in this life, they go straight to heaven when they die. And for the vast majority of the rest, they go to purgatory so the job can be finished because in their view, God only lets those into heaven who are, in practice, righteous. So it's a process, justification. It depends on faith. It depends on the work of Christ on the cross. But their understanding is that faith unites our works with Christ's work, thus creating acceptable works. And, and, and Luther understood that Paul was teaching something very different. That Paul was teaching that justification, forgiveness of sins, occurs in an instant, not in a process. And that it occurs separate, completely apart from any good deed that we do. John MacArthur, speaking of this issue of justification, writes, in its theological sense, justification is purely a legal term. It describes what God declares about the believer, not what he does to change the believer. In fact, justification affects no actual change whatsoever in the sinner's nature or character. Justification is a divine, judicial edict. Now, other aspects of the gospel, regeneration, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the adoption as sons, do begin to change our character, but strictly speaking, justification only deals with what God declares. It's the picture of a courtroom, and a judge looking at a guilty person will either declare that guilty person guilty or innocent. It's the legal declaration. A helpful analogy to explain what we're talking about is marriage. When I was married, for example, Serena and I stood before the minister, her father, and recited our vows. Near the end of the ceremony, her father declared, by the authority vested in me by the state of Idaho, I pronounce you man and wife. Instantly, we were legally husband and wife. Whereas seconds before, we'd only been an engaged couple, now we were married. Nothing inside us had actually changed. But both our status has changed forever before God, the law, 
and our family and friends. And from that declaration of marriage, we went and began to act like married people. And over time, we are more one, and we are more fulfilling those vows. But it was the declaration. We made promises, and then we were declared married. And then we went off and lived like married people. It's the same way with the gospel. God declares sinners righteous. And then, in that new standing, in that new declaration, in that new legal category, well, we go off and live our new natures. We, so often, Paul's argument in the Bible is, be what God has declared you to be. Be what you are. And that is what it is here. So the, so the two views is justification, forgiveness as a process over time, through work and effort and works and faith, and justification as a decree, a judicial act in a moment by faith alone. Now, if you're wondering, well, what's the big deal about all this? Isn't this kind of nitpicky? I mean, if we're both trusting in Jesus, if we're both looking to the cross, if we're both confessing that we need Jesus to be saved, what's the big deal? Well, turn over to Galatians chapter one. Because if we're gonna spend the rest of our morning talking about justification, I want you to see why this is such a crucial issue. See, in Galatians, unlike any of Paul's other letters, Paul comes out swinging, both guns blazing. In chapter 1, verse 6, he writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel... Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And in case you're wondering, well, well, what was this different gospel that was being taught in Galatia? What was this different gospel being promoted? Turn over to chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. Paul deals directly with the issue. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. See, the issue here is justification, the church of Galatia. On what basis are we made right before God? And Paul makes it clear, you add anything to faith, you have a different gospel, which is not a gospel that will not save. And so 500 years ago, the world was torn asunder at the Protestant Reformation as the church of God began to see these things and understand these things and and began to treasure and guard the gospel And here, this passage that we're looking at in Romans is really the clearest teaching in the Bible on this notion of how is man made right with God? How is man justified? And so it's important for us to look at it. It's important for us to understand it. It's important for us to defend it and to live it. Because this is how we are united with Christ. How we receive his benefit. I mean, I could think of no worse tragedy than to understand all this truth, but to mistake how it is that we share in Christ, how it is that we become partakers in Christ. So let's look at our passage. As Paul 
closes this section of the argument and it sort of transitions into chapter four. This week, as you'll see in the notes, is justification by faith alone, part one. And next week, Pastor Gary will show in chapter four how Paul argues in the Old Testament to establish this teaching because he thinks it's so vital and important. But here we see three arguments, three reasons that Paul gives for why this must be so. He is anticipating some form of objection. He's anticipating his reader, perhaps some Jewish element at Rome, to resist this. And so he wants to make it clear justification by faith. That is that God freely forgives sinners by faith and faith alone is really the only way it could possibly be. And the first reason for that is that justification by faith alone excludes boasting. It excludes boasting. And, and here we're looking at verses 27 to 28. And Paul asks the question, a rhetorical question, what then becomes of our boasting? Now that looks back to what we heard last week, the then. You see, if God had to put his son on a cross for all to see, to publicly kill him, in order to prove that he was just and righteous in letting Abraham go to heaven, in letting David, a murderer and adulterer, go to heaven. Then what becomes a boasting? See, what that means is the greatest Old Testament saint still near the Savior, the greatest, most righteous man in the Old Testament still needed a sacrifice for sins. See, it means no one in the Old Testament, no matter how well the Bible speaks of them, merits, deserves heaven. And if that's the case, then no one gets to boast. And if it's by faith, even more so, no one gets to boast. So Paul asks, what then becomes our boasting? It is excluded. Literally, the door is shut to it. It is separated off. God has made it so. And, and, and what Paul is doing, is he recognizes that the Jewish audience, people familiar with their Bibles, will know that God hates boasting. You don't have to read much of the Old Testament to see this theme that a proud heart, an arrogant heart, a self-righteous, patting themselves on the back type of person angers God. And so he, Paul is assuming that his readers recognize boasting's a bad thing. And so Paul asks the question, what then gets rid of boasting? By what sort of law? Now, I'm aware that the NIV at this point translates the text a little differently. Instead of saying, by what type of law, it says by what type of principle. I'm not exactly sure why they did that, but I'd encourage you, if you're reading from the NIV, to look at the back of the insert, because I think, to some degree, it's, it's important to get this. It's just the word law, namos. It occurs five times in this passage, and every time it should be translated law. So, if yours says something different, what he says is, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. And the argument that Paul is making is that there's two ways that you can look at the Old Testament law. Should we view the law of Moses as a law of faith or as a law of works? Should we view the law of Moses as something that calls us to do these things and you will be right with God, which is how many of the Jews understood it, or should we view it as something else? Turn over to Romans chapter 9. This point becomes very clear. When Paul describes what the problem the unbelieving Jews had with the law. Romans 9, 31 and 32. 
Paul gives us insight into the problem, the mistake, the error of the Jews who heard the gospel but did not believe. And he writes, but Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. You see, any approach to the law that thinks, well, this is what God wants me to do, and if we do it, then, you know, we're going to be okay, misunderstands the law. That's what the Jews thought the law was for. They thought it was based on works, and they missed it. So go back to chapter 3, and I'll try to sort of paraphrase what Paul is saying. At the end of verse 27, it's as if he were saying, what understanding of the law of Moses excludes boasting? Does a works approach exclude boasting? No, no, a works approach to the Mosaic law does not exclude boasting. Only a faith approach does. Because if you think about it, if the law really were, here's 311 things I want you to do, and if you do them, you get to go to heaven. Well, the people who do them have something to boast about. The people who do these works can pat themselves on the back, and it's a shame you couldn't be like me. It worked a little harder. You know, it's kind of like that feeling when you're on an airplane and you see the people sort of in first class. It's kind of like, well... Too bad you didn't work a little harder. You didn't, you know, you could be up here too. And we could be boasting. If the law were about works, it would allow boasting. And we should recognize that God's opposed to boasting. Therefore, an approach to the law that allows boasting can't be the right approach to the law. He says, no, the law is about faith. And that may seem strange, because if you've read through the laws, but you read through Leviticus, it really does seem at times like, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We've got to understand that the law is the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. And the law of Moses doesn't enter the picture until Exodus 20, Sinai. And so there's 70 chapters of law before any law enters the law. And in those 70 chapters, what do we see? We see the simple yet strong faith of a man like Abraham. That's exactly where Paul's going to go in Romans 4. And the patriarchs who walked with God and were righteous by faith without a big law of do's and don'ts. And what Paul's reasoning is if you're reading your Old Testament from left to right, if you're starting at the beginning of the story and moving right, by the time the Mosaic law shows up, Faith and justification by faith is already presented. And the law rightly understood is, is a rule to govern faithful, believing people. The Israel that came out of Egypt was supposed to be a people of faith. And here is this rule, this structure to, to govern them until Christ comes. In Galatians, Paul describes it to like a babysitter or a tutor. To watch over the child until he's an adult. The law was brought in to govern a multi-million national entity of hopefully, ideally, believing people to govern their faith. This is the exact understanding of the law that, that David had. In Psalm 51, he writes in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will praise you. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David got it as he read his law, and he, and he loved the law. I mean, just read Psalm 119. He loved the law, but he didn't mistake the main point. He didn't read it and go, what God's really after is sacrifices. 
Now David read it and he said, what God's really after is a broken and contrite heart. A repentant, faithful heart. That's what God's after. And he doesn't go on to say, and because of that, I'm just gonna throw away my law. You keep reading Psalm 51. He says, do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's not as though God only wants faith and it doesn't matter about the rest. What he wants first and foremost is faith and then he wants his faithful people to be trying to do this law stuff. Not so that they can earn salvation but so that they have a way to live out their faith. So David isn't saying because I have a contrite heart who cares about the sacrifices? He just recognizes that primarily what God is after is faith and a broken and contrite heart. And then with that broken heart, with that faithful heart, he's gonna go into the best of his ability by faith, do the things that God called him to do. But that's a radically different way of looking at the law than most Jews and honestly probably most Christians do. It's the law of faith, not a law of works. And it shouldn't be approached as that. And, and we gotta be careful because in the New Testament we run into commands as well. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we can run the risk of thinking, here are the things that God wants us to do. We open our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount and we read it. No, here are the things I've gotta do to go to heaven. Things I've gotta do for God to be pleased with me. And we make the same mistake. We must never look to the commands of God as the way to peace with him. But rather, is how faithful people ought to live. If you're here today and you're not sure if you know God, if you're here today and you don't know if you've ever exercised faith, don't try to start obeying God first and foremost. What you should do first and foremost is turn to him and trust in him and exercise faith in him and receive him. To do anything different would be like trying to do CPR to a, to a dead body it, it won't bring back life. It won't bring life. Doing the law will not give life. Living people breathe. But if there is no life, what is needed is life, not CPR. If, if you don't know the Lord, what you don't need is good works. You need faith in the one who did the good works par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law for you. And we see that this is totally separate from works of the law. And this statement here in, in verse 28 is, is crystal clear. This is really the, the statement the Reformation in some senses was built upon. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart or separate from works of the law. This couldn't be clearer. You can't mingle these two things together. Paul, Paul couldn't be clearer on what he believes, what he thinks is being called for. You know, a simple way to remember it is this. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. I don't care what you want to add in. In Galatia, it was circumcision. It could just as easily nowadays be baptism, going to church, growing up in a Christian family, even, dare I say, being in the right political party. It's Jesus plus or minus nothing. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, there's two approaches here. There's the law-works approach. And to be honest, most of the Jews of Jesus' day understood faith as a necessary ingredient. But they still thought that what they did was going to contribute somehow. 
And they do well to hear the words of James 2.10, who writes, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And Paul's words in Galatians 5.4, where he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. See, that's the thing with the law. It's all or nothing with the law. You can, you can try to deal with God on a law basis, and God is just, and if you keep his law, you go to heaven. We saw that in Romans 2. And then we learn in Romans 3, no one keeps God's law even closely. So you don't want the law approach. See, our pride wants the law approach. We want to chip in. We want to do something. But God says, the only way you receive the grace of my son is if you come empty-handed. If you come humbly receiving a free gift. This begs one final question, which is, well, why can't we boast about our faith? Why can't I boast that, well, I believed and he didn't. Yay me! And that's why, we won't get into this now, but, but the doctrine that even faith is a gift from God, the doctrines of predestination and election were brought up at the time of the Reformation. You know, Luther and Calvin didn't pick this stuff up because they were just, you know, nerdy intellectuals. They understood that if any part of our salvation was supplied by us, if you just sort of muster up faith, then you really still get to boast. The only really true way that excludes boasting in salvation is if from start to finish it is the gift of God. As Ephesians writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. See, God is intent on excluding boasting, and we dare not boast in anything other than the cross. Secondly, we see that justification by faith alone saves both Jew and Gentile alike. This is verses 29 to 30. And Paul now turns and he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the God of the Gentiles also also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Now that reference there, since God is one, and some of your translations may say it differently, is a reference to, to the most well-known to the Jewish mind, Old Testament passage in the Bible, what they call the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In the Jewish understanding of monotheism compared to the nations who were polytheists, separated the mountain, and the Jews prided themselves. There is only one God, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's not a territorial God. He is the God of all. Well, Paul now takes this and sort of turns it back on the Jewish mindset, and he says, well, since you agree that God is one, and I do too, is he the God only of the Jews? See, the, the implication is this. He's still dealing with the issue of law-keeping. And if salvation depended on keeping the law, then one has to ask, what chance do the Egyptians have who don't have the law? What chance do the Assyrians have? See, if salvation is by keeping the law, then if you want to be saved, you better move to Jerusalem because part of the law is that you need to go to Jerusalem three times a year and offer a sacrifice. So you can't keep the law without participating in the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is geographically centered. You can't set up your own little altar in Assyria. 
So if salvation were by the law and law-keeping, then anyone who wanted a chance with God, anyone who wanted to be right with God, would really pretty much need to move to Israel. In fact, if, if you meet anyone today who's trying to keep the law, that's the first question. When's the last time you went to Jerusalem? Because you're supposed to go three times a year for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks, and the Passover. At least. And so Paul's dealing with this issue, saying, look, if, if we really think the way of salvation is by law-keeping, then it's really hard to see how God is not just the God of the Jews. And you hold that God is one. You, you hold to the Shema, that God is God of all. So don't you see how justification by faith really then makes God the God of all? That's what he's saying. And aren't we glad, as I look upon a room that is vastly filled with Gentiles, that God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Gentiles as well. There is a danger in assuming that the one God is on the side of any particular nation, people group, political party. God is the God of all who have faith in his Son, period. See, the church is a transnational entity. It doesn't have geographic borders, geographic centers. And even in the future, when, when God turns his attention to Israel again, it will be a believing Israel. But this was a common mistake that the Jews of Jesus' day made, or even the Jews of the Old Testament. See, the, the, the Pharisees believing this tried to make what they called proselytes. A proselyte was a non-Jewish person who believed the Jewish religion was true and then would try to become Jewish. And eventually, through a series of rituals and baptisms, they could become a proselyte. And Jesus, in Matthew 23, 15, says this to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's not very helpful. This notion that God's our God, not your God. Another example would be in 1 Samuel 7. Israel is, is facing a battle with the Philistines, and rather than humbling themselves and repenting and being a people of faith, they decide to force God's hand. And Hophni and Phinehas, and Phinehas Eli's sons take the ark and bring it to battle thinking this way. There's no way God's going to let his magic box get captured. Boy, were they wrong. See, if, you, if there's no faith, there's no reason to think God's on your side. So God looks down on the battlefield full of unbelief on both sides and pretty much everyone gets whooped up on and the Philistines capture the ark but then God whoops up on them. Without the Israelite army, the, the ark goes on conquest. It's all there in First Samuel 4, 5, and 6. But we see it probably most clearly in Jonah, the, the danger. Of it. And the reason why I want to point this out is, is we're not struggling with this danger, the gods of the Jews only, but we can be tempted in ourselves, honestly, to think that really God's on our side. He's really part of our group. And, and if we start thinking that way, Instead of viewing others as the mission field and the lost, we start viewing them as kind of a step or two down the line. You know, whatever it is we're for. And they can be good things. I mean, keep in mind the Pharisees were the conservatives. They were opposed to abortion and gay marriage. Seriously. 
The Pharisees were the Republicans. The Sadducees were the liberals. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the fundamentalists. They didn't have faith. And it mattered nothing for them. And God was opposed to them. And, and the heart that can come out of this is sort of territorialism of God's our God only. And not seeing God's heart for the salvation of all really gets clearly expressed with Jonah. After Jonah preaches at Nineveh and they repent, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 through 4, 2, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. <clears throat> Somehow I fail to see the validity of his complaint. God, I knew that you were loving. Darn it, I knew that you'd forgive him. And they're not even circumcised. They don't keep the law. You can't forgive them. They gotta become like us first. See, that's, that's the danger. This is sort of going to seed, full, full fruit, what a mentality of God's on our side, on our team, looks like. And we could ask ourselves maybe some similar questions. Is God the God of straight people only? Is he not also the God of the Homosexual Is God the God of Republicans only? Is he not also the God of the Democrats? The Libertarians? Is God the God of wealthy people? Or poor? And you could go through this list. And if we check our hearts, we'd never say that, but if we check our hearts, we might start to see sort of, well, you know, God really is kind of over in our camp. No, he's the God of all who have faith. Which brings us to the second point, that God will justify the uncircumcision and the circumcision through faith. There's no distinction. There is only one gospel. There's only one way of salvation, and it doesn't involve economic status, ethnic heritage, political views. It involves one thing and one thing only, faith in his son. And you may be able to preach the gospel better than me, but you can't preach a better gospel. Because there is only one gospel that saves, and it is the power of God to salvation. And the second we start putting anything up alongside of that, Second, we start letting the world think it's the gospel and whatever good thing we're involved in. We can run the risk of distorting the gospel. God will justify both black and white by faith, straight and gay by faith, Republican and Democrat by faith, rich and poor by faith. He justifies all by faith. That is the only criteria. That is the only measuring stick. What are you doing with his son? Are you trusting in him? Are you turning to him or not? That's it. Excludes boasting. And secondly, we see it excludes national or group pride. The saving God, the one God, is God of all, without distinction, to have faith in him and his son. This brings us to point number three. Paul's view of justification by faith alone upholds the law. And this may seem strange. In fact, he anticipates the objection. Does this teaching then overthrow the law? I mean, what you're saying is, Paul, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. 
whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it's what you just said. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you keep the ceremonial food laws or not. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you keep the Sabbaths or, or whatever else the law says. Paul, are you saying we should just rip our Old Testaments out of our Bible? Paul says, on the contrary, what I've just said actually establishes or upholds the law. And that makes make us go, hmm, how's that? <laughs> right? How does justification by faith alone, apart from circumcision or uncircumcision, apart from law-keeping, establish the law? And that's the same challenge that Jesus got or expected in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here, Paul writes that his understanding of justification by faith alone actually establishes the law. Literally, it sets it in place. There's a couple reasons for this, and, and next week, Pastor Gary will really make this clear. I think that this is kind of a setup for chapter four, so I'll, I'll expect that he'll do a much fuller and better job at this than I will on the few minutes remaining. But first off, we've got the examples in the Old Testament we've seen already. Long before the law, even before circumcision was given, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's credited to him as righteousness. You see, before we get to Exodus 20, we got to get to Genesis 12 through 15, where we see this principle of simple, humble, sincere faith, and God responding with forgiveness, with acceptance. And so the first reason why justification by faith alone establishes the law is it's in keeping with the foundation the law itself is built upon. Paul's argument in four will be something like this. The, the primary promise that God gave was not the law, but the promise to Abraham. And if we go back and look at that in context, it's all about faith. And it's all about blessing not only to the Jews, but to the nations. The law was added 400 years later, and it can't alter that foundational promise. So the law is brought in to govern the people of that promise until Christ appeared, and he has appeared. So Paul's understanding of justification by faith gets back to the very foundational root promise to Abraham and the response that we see in Abraham. That's how it establishes the law. There's also another way I think that's helpful of illustrating this point. I was talking with Jared Brewer, where are you? There you are, over the weekend. And Jared used to build model airplanes. I don't know if you know that. And some of these model airplanes, I don't know if you've seen them, can be really intricate, really precise. And then began taking flying lessons. And I imagine the model airplanes kind of went on the shelf at that point because he's now dealing with the real thing. Well, let me ask you a question. Did the, did the real airplane nullify, abolish the model? No, it established it. Well, how so? Because those model airplanes are training you to recognize the real thing when you see it. Imagine you've got a child who's playing with model airplanes and you take him into a big hangar and in that hangar there's an airplane, there's a motorboat, there's a tractador. That's what my son calls them, tractadors. Um, and, and you say, now which one's the airplane? The kid who's been paying attention to the model is going to, there it is. You see the continuity, the similarity between the model and the plane actually establishes the model. You see, for anyone who's been studying and reading and trying to obey the law of Moses, not to gain favor with God, but because they already have faith, when Jesus comes along and he says, here's what I'm calling of you, 
they should say, oh, wait a second. That's an awful, yeah. That's what, that's what the law of Moses was pointing at. See, go back in chapter three of Romans. That's the very point Paul makes in 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see, the law and the prophets are pointing to. They're anticipating Christ. So when he comes along, if you've been paying attention to the law of Moses, if you've been meditating on it day and night, you get it, that's him. As you read through the Gospels, that's kind of the issue. When people reject him, he tells them, the reason you don't love me is you don't love God and because you don't really get the scriptures. If you understood the scriptures, you'd love me. See, if you really got the Old Testament, when Jesus shows up, you know, there he is, that's him. And so this Gospel then establishes the Old Testament because it shows the Old Testament was right in what it was predicting. It shows that the Old Testament was right in what it was anticipating. This is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking towards. And so in that sense, it establishes it. Which brings us to our final question. How then should we as Christians deal with the big two-thirds of our Bible that comes before the New Testament? And we don't have time to really answer this because it would take many Sundays. But the short answer is this. There are two errors to avoid. <coughs> two errors to avoid. One, don't forget and ignore your Old Testament. You know, the Gospels are so clear and the message of God's salvation is so systematic and so obvious in a book like Romans. You gotta struggle through Leviticus. It's there. You gotta struggle through Leviticus to, to see it more clearly. And so in some places in the Bible, these lights, these rays of hope in the Gospel shine more brightly, I think. I think right here in Romans 3, this is really the heart of the gospel justification. But don't ignore and forget your Old Testament. Read it. I mean, just stop for a second and consider the church at Rome that Paul's writing to is a first-generational church with no apostolic foundation and teaching. These are likely people who were at Pentecost, who went back to Rome, shared the gospel, now as a community of believers. Yet, how well does Paul assume they know their Bibles? Just read through Romans and see how frequently he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. See, he doesn't say, oh, these are new believers. They won't know their Bibles, so I can't quote the Old Testament. He doesn't do that. He says, oh, these are new believers, but they've had a couple months or years. They, they, I'm going to reason from the Old Testament. I'm going to quote the Bible. We should know our Bibles. Don't, don't ignore the Old Testament just because it's a little harder, just because it's a little stranger, just because at times it's confusing. Prayerfully work through it. Read it. Reread it. Read it again. This is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the Bible reading programs that, that, that are taking place at Simpson. Because it forces you to not just read through the parts that are clear and obvious accessible the first time around, but you read through Ezekiel, and trust me, you need to read Ezekiel a couple dozen times before you start to get anything, really. It's confusing. It's hard. But we gotta read it and know it. I'll admit Leviticus at times can make for slow going, but read it. I mean, doesn't God's word say in 2 Timothy that all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for proof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent fully equipped for every good work. And at the time of the writing of 2 Timothy, there wasn't a whole lot of New Testament written. He's mainly talking about the Old Testament, and it's all profitable. And we don't want to make a Bible within the Bible. We don't want to make 
the really important parts of the Bible and the not so important parts of the Bible. You don't want a canon within the canon, a Bible within the Bible. All scriptures inspired of God. But the other error can be equally grievous, and that is to go back and still try to keep the law. And I've met people that try to do that too. They're still trying to keep the food laws. They're still trying to keep the law, not recognizing that we've died to the law to be united with Christ, not recognizing that the old covenant is passing away to make room for the new covenant, not recognizing that Paul says, I'm not under the law. I'm in law to Christ, but I'm not under the law. And you go back and you put a heavy burden upon yourself that our ancestors could never bear, which will either result in despair or self-righteousness. If you try to keep the law, you will either result in self-righteousness or despair. If you think you're doing it, well, now, you're a spiritual Christian, right? If you think you've done it, you'll be proud. But if you've got a more realistic understanding and you recognize that you can't really buy airplane tickets to Jerusalem three times a year, not that there's a temple to go to to offer sacrifices to. Seriously, that's where I always go. Just one. When was the last time you were in Jerusalem for the Passover? Don't tell me you're keeping the law if you're hanging out here. Um, seriously. What we should do is read our Old Testaments and read it with an eye to Christ. Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus said that all the scriptures speak of him and read your Old Testament, it's anticipating, it's predicting, it's looking for Christ, and so it's valuable and it's profitable. Read your Old Testament law. Read the Ten Commandments, not as, here's my checklist for today, but here's a revelation of God and his character, which ultimately I'm going to see most clearly in Jesus Christ. So what am I looking at here that I'm going to see in Jesus? And, and how does this aspect of the character of God show up in Christ and his law and his kingdom? That's how we should be reading our Old Testaments. What we shouldn't be doing if we understand the gospel and justification is congratulating ourselves. That, that would just provoke God. And it would demonstrate that we don't understand the gospel. Remember, this is all about how is man justified? How is man to receive the grace of Christ? The Apostle Paul has said as clearly as he possibly could, it's by faith alone. Sola Fide, the great statement of the Reformation. Faith alone, apart from works. And he's made it clear why. Faith alone removes boasting. Faith alone makes God the God of all, not just a territorial God. And it establishes and upholds the law. Now, if we understand that, the last thing on earth we would be doing is patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves. Rather, we would be praising God. We would not be boasting. We would be humbly thankful. And we're going to close with a final song, I Boast No More, penned by Isaac Watts, summarizing this truth. So please stand, worship team, come up, and we will sing one last song.